Good morning, everyone. It's Palm Sunday. What a wonderful day to worship the Lord together. And so we're going to turn to John chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 12 through um, 35. Now, this passage begins after a feast was held in Jesus' honor at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus in Bethany. And so we read here in John chapter 12, verse verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, Well, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Um, folks out traveling and whatnot, so you want to be praying for them. Certainly keep Kathy Mills in your prayer, too. Boy, she's been through the ringer here for uh, a little while and certainly needs our prayers. Um, just a quick plug for what's coming up in this this week ahead, uh, right? These are, we have our Holy Week services, extra services throughout the week. Uh, today, Palm Sunday. Uh, and the thing is, we're, we're letting the book of John kind of be our guide uh, through this week as we kind of remember or recall or re-experience these major events in the last week leading up to Jesus' death. Uh, So we'll be in John 12 today. And then on Thursday, we have our Maundy Thursday service here, kind of a communion dinner. Uh, Mark, I think we'll explain a little bit more about that a little bit later on. But in that, we'll be reading John portions of John 13 through 17. And then on Friday, we have a tenebrae service here. Uh, at 7 o'clock in the evening, and there we'll be walking through John 18 and 19. And then on Easter Sunday, we have a sunrise service at 6 o'clock, and then our regular worship service at 10, where we'll be walking through John chapter 21. Okay, so it's a great week. Letting John be our guide. And, you know, and I would just really encourage you, uh, take advantage of these things, right? These these events, uh, the, these, are, these are the core of the gospel. Right? Or these events are the core of who we are as followers of Jesus. It's the core of who we are. Uh, as a church, and uh, so we're excited. It was good for us to kind of relive these, re-experience them, uh, and let them draw us into the awe and the worship of the Son of Man, okay? And John chapter 12 is kind of like the introduction to this whole week and to everything that we'll be talking about uh, in the in the week ahead. Uh, and just to set this up, actually, before we dive in this morning, I have one more picture from my trip uh, if you uh, if you're new here, that uh, was graciously sent to Israel a couple of weeks ago with Bob and Corey, and I just had a great time seeing. And so I've been showing pictures from the trip uh, for the past couple of weeks. And to start us off, I want to show you a picture. Um, we spent the first couple of days over there, actually in the town of Nazareth. I think Nazareth was might be the I don't know one of my favorite parts about the whole trip. It was just really neat to be in this town where. Jesus actually grew up, and he spent 30 years of his life. And so I liked walking around at night and just looking over the city and imagining Jesus for 30 years of his life, just growing up in this town of Nazareth. Okay, but on the uh, one of those early days, we got back to the hotel uh, an hour or two or so before dinner, so we had a little time to play with. And so I asked the bus driver, actually, if he could take me and drop me off just a little bit outside of town to this Mount Precipice. Uh, it's a miracle of uh, GPS that I could find my way back to the hotel afterwards. Right, but it was great. So I wanted to go to this Mount Precipice. Uh, it's a beautiful mountain. You, you hike up to the top of it, and you can look out. You can see the whole Jezreel Valley there. Uh, I don't know if you can really see it in this picture, but like off to the right, you can see Mount Carmel, or you can see Harmageddon, Mount Megiddo, uh, or you can see, oh, geez, uh, Gibeah, the hills of Gibeah, you know, down to the left. I think I have one more picture from up here. Yeah, uh, this is looking, yeah, out across that whole Jezreel Valley. Just beautiful. And there's maybe the Gibeah Mountains, uh, I think. Bob, am I right on that? 
Yeah, I'm going to get to that. You just ruined the end of my sermon for me. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's all right. We're going to come back to Mount Tabor. Yeah, over here. right. I love this mountain. I'll tell you why <laughs> towards the end of the sermon. Okay, but the other reason, so it's a beautiful view up here. But the other reason I wanted to go to Mount Precipice is because this, according to tradition, is the place where the Nazarene folk dragged Jesus uh, with the intention of throwing him off this cliff. Right? As Jesus started to engage in his public ministry, started to speak, started to explain about who he was. This wasn't settling right with a significant group of these Nazarene folk. And so they dragged him up this cliff with the intention to throw him off. It seems like an awful lot of work when a couple of heavy stones could have just done the trick. But they wanted to throw him off this cliff. They wanted to make it real dramatic. Right? And so you're standing up there. You know, and as you're you're looking over this and you're imagining this whole scene, right? It's a beautiful scene, but then you're imagining what happened here on the rage of this crowd, dragging Jesus with the intention of throwing him off the cliff. And, you know, you're reminded in that moment, right, that this Jesus wasn't just a tame, lovable, universally accepted Jesus, right? He was a very polarizing figure that many loved, and decided to entrust their lives to and to worship. And others wanted him as far removed from their life as possible. Right? Which is, you know, in many ways, what a good Palm Sunday sermon is often about. Right? Because Palm Sunday, as we head into the Easter week, it's, it's that, you know, that, that dynamic contrast between the crowds at the beginning of the week that are coming out of Jerusalem to hail Jesus as the blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and are waving palm branches and shouting blessed is the king. And then the other crowd at the end of the week that is shouting crucify him and is dragging him back out of the city with the intent to hang him up on a cross and lead him to his death. Right? Again, this poignant reminder that Jesus is something of a polarizing figure and you either love him and you see his glory and you see his worth and it leads you to worship, it draws you in, or there's something about Jesus that is repulsive, that pushes you away, or there's something about Jesus that is dangerous or offensive such that you don't want him a part of your life and you want him as far removed from your life or maybe even the land of the living as possible. To be somewhere in the middle, I'm not sure you really are listening (laughs) to Jesus, put it that way. So uh, basically what I want to do this morning is just simply ask the question, which crowd are you in? Like, where, where do you fall on that? Uh, and then we're just going to walk our way through chapter 12, just setting up why this Jesus is so polarizing. And you see a couple things in the chapter that kind of uh, clue us in. All right, so that's what we're doing here this morning. And to get into it, let me just set the scene first, right? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and there's two images I want to talk about briefly. First of all, it's Passover. I want to talk about Passover. And two, I want to talk about these palm branches that everybody's waving as he comes into town. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 12 there, we're told it's a few days uh, prior to, to fa- Passover. Okay, and, and remember, all right, what is Passover. Passover is this great celebration, this feast in the annual calendar uh, of the life of Israel, and it celebrates what? Yeah, right. When the angel of death passed over uh, the Israelites' homes in Egypt, and, and it's a celebration of when God came in incredible display of power and delivered his people from the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. Right? The whole ten plagues. 
And then as the Egyptian empire, army is chasing them in hot pursuit, God drowns them in the Red Sea, leads them out into the wilderness en route to this land of promise that he has for them. All right, so it's a great celebration. But as I always think it's important to remember, it has to be something of a heavy celebration as well, too. Why? <laughs> because they find themselves in a situation where they are, again, under the mighty, oppressive hand of a foreign empire. Right? They are subjects of the Roman Empire. And so as they're coming and they're celebrating this great holiday of independence, I would imagine either the, the celebration is a little bit dampened or maybe the celebration has a little bit of angst to it and a little bit of hope and longing for God. When are you going to come and do this again? It'd be like if we were celebrating the 4th of July while under the oppressive reign of some, you know, President Putin or something like that, you know, whatever. Like there would be this weirdness to celebrating the 4th of July, there would be an angst to it. All right, let's talk about these palm branches. Uh, what's the deal with these people coming out waving these palm branches? Uh, so this is actually something that would draw the attention back to an event in Israel's history. Actually, after the close of the Old Testament, so it's not in our Old Testament, this would have been about 200 years prior to the arrival of Jesus onto the scene, when at this time, uh, Israel is under the control of uh, folks from Syria and the Seleucids, and in particular, this guy named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he's another ruthless, maniacal guy who's just bent on holding on to power, so much so that after a series of events, he decides, okay, I need to eliminate the cultural practice of Judaism. I'm not going to wipe out Israelites, per se, but I want to get rid of this unique cultural practice of Judaism. I want to make them good Hellenized Greeks. And so he comes in to Jerusalem, and he says, all right, no more practicing the Sabbath. The Sabbath that you all been doing for a couple hundred thousand years, right, that's out. No more circumcision, no more circumcising your first, you know, your, your sons, like God, as a sign of God's covenant that he had made with you for centuries. No, no more of that. He made them eat pork, which they never did. <laughs> if it was me, I was like, okay, wait a minute, you're making me eat spare ribs and kibasi. No, no, you bad, mad man, don't do this. <laughs> anyway, I shouldn't, shouldn't make light of it. But anyway, and worst of all, uh, he, he completely desecrated the temple, the most holy place in all of Israel in Jerusalem. He went up and slaughtered a pig, spilled its blood in the temple, and he made the temple, turned the temple into a shrine to the cult of Zeus. Meanwhile, off in some rural hills, there was a family, the Maccabees, uh, who decided, okay, enough of this. I'm sick of this desecration that's going on. We're sick of how this guy is just coming in and just plowing over all that we are as a people. Like, we've got a revolt. And so they start gathering a band of rebels, and they start going into the hills, and they start launching these guerrilla attacks, these guerrilla-style warfare attacks on all these little Seleucid regiments that are all scattered throughout Israel. And the thing is, they're wildly successful. Pretty much everywhere they go, they're driving, they're catching these Seleucid armies off guard. Uh, they're casting them out of these towns in these areas, and they're just wiping them out and pushing them back, partly because the Seleucids are engaged in a whole bunch of other conflicts and sort of a little weak at the time. But anyway, they're wildly successful, and after three years, they march towards Jerusalem. And they say, okay, the time has come. We're going to purge the city of Jerusalem from these pagan oppressors and their abomination of desecration that's going on in our city. 
This is led by Judas, Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, as he was affectionately referred to, <laughs> right? And so as he's leading his troops into Jerusalem, guess what? Everybody's coming out, and guess what they're doing? They're grabbing palm branches off of trees. There's date palms all over the place out there. I had no idea there were so many palm trees in Israel, but there are. And they're grabbing these palm trees, and they're waving them in celebration of Judas Maccabeus, who's coming in to deliver the city of Jerusalem. And actually, from that time on, right, these palm branches became a symbol of Jewish nationalism. You started to put them on coins, right, all, the, all the money in, in Israel, or you would start to see it in royal artwork. Right? These palm branches as a sign of nationalism and a sign of this event when God came and delivered them yet again. Right? So when these guys come out with their palm branches as Jesus is riding into town, this isn't just a nice, quaint little thing that little kids walk around with their palm branches. Hey, look who's coming. Uh, there's, there's a potency to this. And you pick it up when they start shouting, Hosanna, save us. Right? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118, I believe, verse 25 or 26. And then what they do is they tack on a little phrase that's actually not in the psalm, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's in the psalm. And then this other phrase, and blessed is the king of Israel. Right? There it is. Why is everybody coming out all excited? Because they're convinced this is the guy. This is the one coming in the name of the Lord. This is the one God has sent who's going to do it again, who at long last is going to deliver us from our pagan oppressors. So grab the palm branches. Let's get out there and celebrate. Here he comes. Right? They've heard good news coming up from the, or coming down from the Galilee region. You know, this guy teaches with authority. He's healing people with diseases. Oh, and then we've got news from Bethany that this guy Lazarus had fallen sick and actually had died. But then Jesus shows up a few days later, goes to the tomb, calls Lazarus to come out, and he comes walking out of the tomb. Clearly, this is the guy we've been waiting for who was going to deliver us. Right? So there's your scene. There's the setting. It's a little charged. And so you imagine people that come out, maybe come out to the city gates and they, they watch Jesus coming up, you know, from the Kidron Valley there. You like how I can use all these phrases, all these terms now because I've been there, right? He's coming up out of the valley. And, uh, and you know, you're watching him come up from a distance and you're looking at him and say, well, that looks a little weird. It doesn't seem, he's not riding like a big stallion the way Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer rode when he came into Jerusalem. He's not riding a big stallion the way, you know, the Roman emperor would if he was going to come into town. He's riding this, you know, this little animal that's more fit for a child or a hobbit or something, right? This little beast of burden is full, is full of a donkey. But maybe, maybe then somebody says, ah, no, no, wait a minute. Right? We remember our prophet. Remember prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. He said, Behold, your king is coming to you with righteousness and salvation. Humble is he, riding on the foal of a donkey. Oh, yeah. I remember now. Here he comes. He's just, whatever, fulfilling the word of the prophets as he comes into town. But then he gets off the donkey and he starts to speak. And he starts to talk. And he starts saying, I don't know, odd things for a king to be saying. And he says, uh... Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, why is this king, when he comes off, you know, starts talking about death and falling into the ground and all this? And he says, whoever loves his life in this world loses it, and whoever loses his life in this world keeps it for it. What are we talking about here? Kings 
The messiahs, they don't die, right? They're coming in to put to death the pagan oppressors. Okay, simple point here. This Jesus is coming in. Yes, he's coming for the kingdom. Yes, he is coming for the throne. Yes, he is coming, as we'll talk about in a second, to cast out the ruler of this world. But his whole way of doing kingdom and kingship and authority and power and victory looks totally different than the way the world was accustomed to seeing it. Right, it's that whole contrast that we saw in Revelation chapter 5 where on the one hand we hear, oh, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah to seize the kingdom. And then John turns and he looks and what does he see? He sees a meek little lamb that's all bloodied up looking like he'd been slain. Like, uh, one of the nights uh, when we were in Jerusalem, I wanted to talk to some of the local people there. So I went walking through the newer section of Jerusalem and found a Nice little pub, the Red Lady Pub. <laughs> I went in there, and I sat. I never, never did meet the Red Lady. I don't know who she was, but I went in there, and I chatted uh, with just some of the people that were uh, there uh, in the pub. And I was talking with this one guy who was actually visiting Jerusalem. He was on a business trip there. He lived up more up in the north. And we talked about a variety of things. But one thing I was always, you know, as American coming in, I, tell me about this tension that exists, right, between the Israelites and the Palestinians. And we talked about that a little bit. And he said, actually, where I come from, up more up in the north, uh, there's a lot of Israelites and Palestinians and even death, different ethnicities. And we really don't have so much of the conflicts that you have down here. And I said, well, what's the difference? Why is that the case? And he said, religion and politics. He was an atheist. As many of them, he said, were up in his town. But Jerusalem, kind of the epicenter, the political activity and religious activity. So you put those two things together, it tends not to go well. <laughs> you know, you bring this up at a Thanksgiving dinner, you talk politics, and then you add religion to the mix, depending on the crowd that's there. They're either all going to be on board or it's going to be some friction going on there. Same thing in the broader world, right? Whenever those two things kind of come together, it doesn't always seem to end well. But... Here's the point. Here's this Jesus who's coming in with a radically different approach to both of those things. A radically different approach to political power and a radically different approach to religion or to worship and to a life of faith. He's coming in with humility. And his intention of accomplishing kingdom victory is going to happen through radical self-sacrifice and radical self-giving and love and compassion. And so you look at this Jesus and you either see that as being something beautiful that you worship and delight in, or you look at this Jesus and you think he's some, you know, some naive millennial hippie who just thinks that all the problems of the world are going to be solved through love and peace and whatever. And please, that's not going to do anything. That's not going to rid us of the Roman Empire. And so actually you think not only is this Jesus naive, but maybe he's a little bit dangerous if he starts getting a group of followers who start coming and want to buy into his way of doing it. Now, actually, I think we need to get rid of this Jesus. Right? You see the tension that's starting. All right. Well, another thing that happens, uh, he comes in, uh, we find out that there are some Greeks who are coming into the festival to celebrate the Passover, and they want to see Jesus too. And so they come to Philip and they say, Philip, we would see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew, and then Philip and Andrew, they come to Jesus and say, hey, there's some Greek folks who, who want to see you, want to meet you. And Jesus says, ah, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, and that's a really interesting line for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, throughout the book of John, 
There have been a couple times where John has actually told us, or Jesus himself has told us, the hour is not, is not here yet. In chapter 2, when Jesus is at a wedding celebration in Cana, right? And they run out of wine. And his mom comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, can you do anything about this? They've all run out of wine. He looks his mom, <laughs> one of the funniest lines for me in the New Testament. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> My hour has not come. Or chapter 7, where there's a group that wants to arrest Jesus, but John tells us they couldn't do it because the hour had not come. So here we are, chapter 12. Some Greeks want to see Jesus. He gets word of this and says, ah, now's the time. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so the question is, well, what is it about these Greeks wanting to see Jesus that all of a sudden flips the switch? Oh, now's the hour. He doesn't tell us there specifically, but I would imagine there's a connection here with Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel, he's prophesying about a day when God is going to come and deliver his people. And so he talks about this one like a son of man who comes before the ancient of days and to him is given a kingdom and a dominion, which is everlasting. And the thing about this kingdom is that it's going to be composed of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the planet. You know, and the thing about this prophecy is that he's, he's looking forward, prophesying actually what Israel should have been doing from day one. Right? This whole Old Testament, this whole plan that God had with Israel, it was never just something that was supposed to be exclusive to Israel. Now you go all the way back to the initial promise that God makes to Israel's great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. He says, look, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a great offspring. And then the third part of the promise is, look, through you, I'm coming for all the nations. Through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. All right, but in Israel's rejection of God's covenant and their law and their failure to be faithful and obedient to him, right? They mucked up that whole plan. And so Daniel's like looking forward to this day when this kingdom is going to be restored. And then at long last, all the families of the earth are going to come streaming in and be blessed. And see, I think that's the connection here where now Jesus hears that there are these Greeks who want to see him. And he says, now the hour has come for that son of man to be glorified. You know, and you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this. I showed you pictures. I don't have these pictures now, but I showed you pictures when we were at the baptism site at the River Jordan. And all behind us, all on the, you know, were all these plaques of a quotation from the book of Matthew that were sent in, in, in all the original, in all the languages and all the tongues of people all around the world. And it was just such a neat thing. It was such a powerful picture that, yeah, you really are part of this global movement of Christ followers, which is something just radically unique to Christianity. Right? When you think of other world religions, again, you think of them as isolated in certain parts, maybe like Islam over in the Middle East or Northern Africa, where you've got the Far Eastern religions or whatever. But this Jesus movement is something universal. Uh, Christianity often gets a bad rap here. People say, well, that's just some white Western religion, you know. And the, fact, and the problem is that that assessment is terribly Western white in itself. Like if you actually went around the world, you went to somebody in Africa or Latin America or over in Eastern Asia, they might actually say, well, actually, we beg to differ with you. 
It's not actually a, a Western white man's religion. It never was, and it isn't now. And the places around the world where it's growing most dynamically are not in the Western white world. It's in these other places. The simple point is, there's something about this Jesus that is drawing all people to himself, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And you look at that, and you maybe say, wow, there's something there's something beautiful about that. This Jesus and who he is and how he's going about his business. There's, there's something that draws me to that. Or, actually the thing here in chapter 12, we don't actually have any record of the conversation with these Greeks. I don't know if John just didn't record it or you almost get the sense, well, maybe Jesus blew him off and said, ah, no, I don't have time for that. I actually don't think that's the case. I think if you notice what Jesus says, he goes on to say, okay, yeah, unless, he starts talking. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? In a sense, he's saying to them, okay, you're going to see me in my glory. It's not going to be pretty. Do you really want to see me? Or then he goes on to say, Whoever loves his life in this world loses it, and whoever loses his life in this world keeps it for eternity. And if you would follow me, or if you would serve me, you have to follow me. Because where I am, that's where my servants are also. In other words, saying, yeah, and, and this, my example of humility and my example of radical sacrifice and radical self-giving, this is what it looks like to follow me. So yeah, you really want to see me in all my glory? You want to entrust your life to this? You want to follow this? Right? Again, you either love it, you're drawn to it, or there's something offensive and dangerous about it that pushes you away. Uh, one last section here. Jesus actually says here, uh, so now my soul is troubled. You know, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. When, this is the whole reason I'm here. And I love that little section, right? Because it draws us into the humanity of Jesus. As he's squaring up with everything that's in front of him. You know, this radical act of self-sacrifice. Where the weight of the sin of the world is going to be placed on his shoulders. And the weight of the wrath of, the God, of God is going to be placed on him, right? He's not just going skipping and dancing. Oh, this Right, there's a heaviness to it. And there's a trouble that lays heavy on his heart. Such that within him is this desire to call out to the Father, save me from this hour. Uh, there's something, again, beautiful in that. It draws me into his humanity and what he's experiencing. Okay, but then hold that thought because then he comes back with another thing that, that can be a little eye-raising. He says, okay, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now is the time when the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. And so real quick, here's the question. Who is this ruler of the world that's about to be cast out? Yeah, we're probably not here talking about Herod or Pilate or Caiaphas. We're talking about the spiritual force of darkness. This spiritual enemy of God, this Satan whose whole Aim and purpose is to undo everything of God, everything of the creator, right? His whole purpose is to undo God's project of creation and life and beauty and love, right? And to collapse the world back in on itself in chaos and death. So, okay, 
All right, great. You're going to kick that guy out? Okay, then. Well, nothing. That can't be too bad. Now, let me ask you a question. You called him the ruler of this world. <laughs> and so exactly what world are you talking about here? I mean, I'm assuming you mean some world out there, right? Not here, Jerusalem or Israel, or not here, the world that I inhabit. Or you certainly don't mean that he's ruler of, of my life, do you? Actually, it's going to be in a couple chapters where Jesus is going to talk about his death a little bit more. And he said, you know, there's going to be these, the ruler of this world is coming for me. And it seems like more in that passage, this is chapter 14, he is there sort of referring to Pilate and to Caiaphas, you know, the Jewish high priest that are coming for him. You know, and so the question is, well, who is actually is the ruler of the world? Is it Satan or is it Caiaphas and Pilate? And probably the answer is, well, yes, it's that. Satan is doing his business through these broken, sinful, wicked people. You know, you think back to the temptation of Jesus when Satan takes him up onto a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says to him essentially, hey, you know that whole cross bit? (laughs) Why do that? I'll give you these kingdoms. They belong to me. I'll give them to you. Just drop the knee. Bow the knee to me, and they're all yours. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't do that. But the point is still there that, you know, here's the implication. All these kingdoms, right? This messed up broken world, this messed up sinful people. Yeah, <laughs> that's my doing. In other words, here's the point. Jesus is aiming at a much bigger problem, a much bigger issue here than just Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod and the emperor, you know, whatever. He's going for this spiritual force of darkness that is wreaking havoc all throughout his creation. And here's the other point, that when we hear of Jesus coming from the Lord as a savior and a rescuer and a restorer, the implication is there that all of us, you and me, are in desperate need of this rescue and this salvation and this deliverance. Because in our brokenness and in the things of our heart that are not right, we've gotten, we've gotten all tangled up in these false allegiances with that spiritual enemy, that spiritual force of darkness. And in that collusion with him and that participation with him, whether you want to acknowledge that or not, right? We bear the consequences of that. We bear the stain of that. We bear the guilt of that. And so we desperately need a deliverer. But you can see how this could be a little bit offensive. Or you can see how if you're a first century Roman or first century Israelite, you're saying, okay, I don't know anymore. If I, I'm going to put those palm branches back. Because look, I, I'm only interested, I, I'm, I'm I'm expecting you to come in and crush the pagan oppressors and to drive Rome out of our country. So we don't have to deal with that. Now you're talking about this bigger power that apparently I'm in collusion with or whatever. It's like if I go to the doctor and (laughs) the example I always use, I go to the doctor and say, I've got back pain. And the doctor wants to say, well, let's talk about your diet. And I said, what do you mean when talk about it? I got back pain. I want you to deal with the, the pain in my back. He says, well, tell me about your diet. I said, what do you mean about my diet? I subsist on a diet of red meat and processed cheese. It's called a cheesesteak. Look it up, right? I'm, I'm here to deal with pain. I'm not here to talk about my diet. And he says, well, actually, Mike, that might be part of the problem. <laughs> Why there's pain in your joints, <laughs> right? In that same way, to acknowledge Jesus and to shout Hosanna 
as him as a savior is to imply that there is stuff that I need to be saved from. I need to be delivered from. To hear Jesus say, I'm coming for this bigger rule. I'm not coming just to fix your little problems that you think you have. I'm coming for something much bigger. There's an offense to that. I want to say, we just get a little bit here in chapter 12, (laughs) just to some of the uniqueness of this king and why he was so polarizing. Why, at the end of the week, there's going to be another crowd that's shouting, crucify him. You know, bring back Judas Maccabeus or give us Barabbas the zealot with the knife, right? We want that. I don't know what this guy's talking. Get him out of here. And so the question is, where are you? Where are you falling at? Right? Does Jesus have his effect on your life when he says, when I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself? Does he draw you to himself? Or are you like some of the crowds, if you would read through the rest of the chapter, who, though they saw these great signs of Jesus, still did not believe and entrust their life to him? Or later on, the people who maybe did believe, but they didn't want to be cast out of their positions of privilege and power. And it says, so they stayed quiet because they loved the glory of man more than his glory. So where are you? Do you see Jesus? And do you see that there is something glorious, beautiful about him that draws you to him and leads you in worship? Do you see this Jesus and recognize, I need him and everything that he's all about. I need this offer of life and salvation and forgiveness and freedom and deliverance such that you would be willing to Place your life into his care and trust your life to him. Right? Or do you see this Jesus in all of his glory and all of his beauty and you hear his call to come and to follow him in his radical demonstration of self-sacrifice and love and compassion and that is so compelling to you that you would say, yeah, okay, I'm all in. I want this kingdom. I want to be a part of this. I want to follow you. Lead me to life, whatever that means, even if it means I lay down my life for wherever you're leading me. Were you like the crowds who see in Jesus something dangerous, something more, right, whatever the opposite of pulling you in, repulsive, pushing you away, such that you want him just removed from your life, removed from your home, your town, wherever it is. Now you can bring out that picture and we'll talk about Mount Tabor to close it out. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it is. Mount Tabor. I think I put in the sermon notes Mount Hermon. It's not Mount Hermon. It's Mount Tabor. Um, and it was one of my favorite mountain out there, partly because it just pops up out of the middle of nowhere in this Jezreel Valley. So it's just a beautiful mountain to look at. I wish I could have got closer to get a, a better picture of it. Um, but the other reason this mountain was so, was so compelling to me is, well, one of the traditions is that this was the Mount of Transfiguration. There's actually debate whether it is Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. Um, but I was looking at Mount Tabor from the Mount Precipice here, and I was imagining that as the Mount of Transfiguration. I know there's a little chapel up there where they remember that. And that's where Jesus took his disciples up, and, you know, Elijah and Moses appear, and they're speaking with him, ministering to him. And then he comes down, and Luke's gospel says when he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, he turns his face, and now his whole countenance, his whole self now is aimed at Jerusalem. And I imagine that as he turns his face from Nazareth or from the Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's got his course now charted for Jerusalem, I imagine that he he knows what awaits him there. 
And he knows that that's going to be where they're, they're finally going to get him. Couldn't throw him off the cliff here. It wasn't the hour. It wasn't time. But that's where it's going to happen. And I imagine as he comes down off of Mount Tabor and he sets his face to Jerusalem, some of that trouble stirs in his heart. And maybe some of that desire to cry out, Father, save me from this hour, stirs in his heart and his mind. And I imagine there's a heaviness there. Imagine that's why Elijah and Moses had to come and to speak with him and to minister to him and prepare him for what lay ahead. And yet what does he do? Grabs his followers, on we go. And so as I was just thinking about that, right, you're just, you're drawn in again to the perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience, the perfect faithfulness, the perfect compassion of this king. And it just led me to be reminded that, yeah, this is a king who's worth following and is a king who's going to do you right, right? Because he's perfect and he's unfailing in his obedience to the creator and to his father. He's perfect and unfailing in his faithfulness to his people. He's perfect and unfailing in his love and his compassion, such that while trouble weighs heavy, yet he charts his course for Jerusalem, come what may. Not only is this a king who has who is loaded with glory and full of worth, and not only is this a king who is offering to you life and deliverance and forgiveness, and not only is this a king who is inviting you, beckoning you to get in on this kingdom, but it's a king who's worth it. And this king won't let you down. It's a king who in his perfect faithfulness and obedience will always do you right. And so I pray that God would lead you in this week ahead as you reconsider his glory, you see it anew, and you let that question of Jesus kind of poke and prod in your heart again. I pray that this Father and this Son and this Holy Spirit uh, would lead you into renewed worship, renewed submission, and a renewed desire to throw your life in faith and trust at his feet. We pray that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.